0: you for joining us today at renovatus a church for people under renovation if you have a prayer need would like to talk with a pastor or want to share how this message impacts you we would love to hear from you email us at info at if you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of god in charlotte you can give online at renovatuschurch.com we hope you are truly blessed by today's message
1: You can open your Bibles up to the book of Revelation. Nobody get nervous. There are no charts or diagrams this morning. Um, so, yeah, it's like, oh boy, this guy's on an apocalyptic clip or uh, kick. Where's, where's the clipboard and charts and all that good stuff. Um, but trust me, you don't have to worry about any of that. It is uh, Reign of Christ Sunday. Uh, this is a Sunday in which we emphasize uh, the lordship of Christ, the, um, uh, the eternal nature of Christ's reign, as well as what the implications of that are for us in the church today. Um, we are going to continue in the apocalyptic genre <laughs> as we started last week um, because, without getting ahead of myself in the sermon, apocalyptic language, or excuse me, apocalyptic genre provides language to us to help us understand the breadth and the depth and the height of the Lord's reign. Um, I find it difficult, myself, in Scripture, sometimes to really uh, find personal language to articulate what all that means to us and what the significance of that is. Um, But Apocalypse gives us some language for it. And it gives us some imagery for it. It gives us some some flesh and bones for it, if you will. So uh, let's begin by reading Revelation chapter 1. Now this is, I'm going to read a little more than what the lectionary text is. So if you've read the lectionary, uh, you know it starts uh, at the second half of the fourth verse. We're going to go ahead and start back at the beginning because I want to make a reference to some things that John says leading up to uh, our lectionary reading this morning. So if we can uh, get that up. Revelation 1, starting in verse 1. By the way, the word revelation in Greek is apocalypse. So we're reading apocalypse, chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will well. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, I grew up in a church where the most important question that was asked every week or at every event was this. Some of you will identify with this. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, right? That was the dominant question of our theology growing up. Um, Made famous largely by Billy Graham Crusades even, where that was the prominent question. Everything was leading to that. Do you believe and accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Now, this isn't a bad question necessarily, right? This isn't a bad question necessarily. Uh, The Gospels testify that Jesus... Thank you, sir. I I needed some water, y'all, so thank you, Dennis, for doing that for me. Which isn't necessarily a bad question. The Gospels testify that Jesus was indeed a Lord and a Savior. However, as I grew in my faith, I began to find this question, as being the primary and dominant question of the church, problematic. I found this question to be problematic for several reasons. First of all, every time I heard this question asked, um, especially from the pulpit, like during an altar call, um, the emphasis of the question was always on the personal nature of of my belief in Jesus' lordship and saving power. It was as if the locus of God's eternal activity was in me. And even that uh, his lordship and his saviorship were contingent upon my confession of his lordship and saviorship. So this personal nature began to be a little problematic for me as I grew in my faith. Secondly, it was problematic because in my growing up, it was the final question, right? Like, there was nothing else the church was really asking but that. In fact, very few questions other than that were allowed, you know. We we were very resistant to people asking too many questions. Um, And if we did allow questions, that was great, but no question was more important than this question, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? See, I have to keep asking it because that's what you do, right? Like you keep asking it till somebody runs to the altar and confesses. But thirdly and finally, you, you had to answer that question definitively only once, and the matter was settled, right? You only had to respond to the question once, pray the prayer, and it was settled. Now, even if you were in a church that taught backsliding, and my church did, so I practiced it, Um, If you were in a church that taught backsliding, that you could lose your salvation, coming back to Christ was as easy as re-answering the question. Again, I now accept again Jesus as my Lord, personal Lord and Savior. Now, this easy, extremely personal, formulaic imagining of God's work in the world worked great in the early stages of my development. I knew the answer to the question. It was good. It is well with my soul. Ask me the question, I know the answer. Have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes. And if I was really good, I knew the date of it, and I was never that good because I did it so many times, I have no idea which one stuck. But somewhere along the way, one of them stuck, and I don't know which one. So I, I always... Anytime I fill out anything for uh, denominational forms, they always ask, when did you give your heart to Jesus or when did you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? I never know exactly what the date is. So I've got like tons of dates out there. And they're all random. I'm like, I think we had a revival this summer, this year, and that was the one, but I'm not sure. So it worked great early in my faith. But as I grew older and as I began to learn more about the Scriptures and as the Spirit began to do more in my life, um, it just became more and more problematic, and it became a theology that just didn't fit very well anymore. I remember the first time that I had this revelation, that that this kind of formulaic, personal uh, understanding of Jesus' lordship and saviorship was problematic, was actually during a missions service at my, the first church that I pastored. And It was near the end of my time there at that church, and I'd already begun to asked some questions I really wasn't allowed to ask early on in my faith development. And I remember this missionary uh, did a slideshow, and he talked about this area in Latin America. I can't remember exactly where it was at, but it was somewhere in Latin Latin America, where there was a whole city of poor people who literally lived in the local landfill. And he put pictures of it up. Hundreds of people with trash homes, Shelters to keep them from the weather built out of the trash that they found in the landfill. And children going through garbage bags trying to find food that wasn't too rotten for them to eat. He stood there and he talked about how poor the situation was for these people. But as he spoke, he didn't really talk too much about their living condition. Instead, he emphasized how many of those people he had gotten to answer the question... Have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior in the affirmative? He boasted that in his time there already dozens had come forward and accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And on this particular Sunday, maybe I just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, it just did not sit well with me that with children living in a landfill, The most important thing a Lord and Savior was concerned about was whether or not they personally knew Him as such or accepted Him as such. To me, I was asking the questions, and you can judge me if you want to, that's fine. I was asking the question, how weak is this Lord and Savior if His Lordship only functions personally in such an esoteric and ethereal way? Like... What is that? Is that really being the Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? It started me down a path of really thinking critically about my faith and eventually deconstructing much of what I thought of as my faith. That process, going through that process, is where I first fell in love with the apocalyptic language of Scripture. Growing up as a somewhat fundamentalist, I largely disregarded apocalyptic passages like Daniel, Revelation, and portions of the gospel. In fact, when it came time or whenever I felt like I needed to preach from apocalyptic passages, I can't remember one sermon from that era early on in my life as a Christian and as a minister where I actually preached my own words because I had no idea what to do with the apocalypse given the framework that I was handed as a Christian. To me, it didn't fit. It didn't work. The language was weird and off and wonky. I didn't know how to use it to get people to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So a lot of times, I just preached what the commentary said with none of my own words, just as much as possible regurgitating what I was fed as a child, largely with clipboards and charts and those kind of things. But the more I moved away from these very fundamentalist and personal iterations of the faith, the more I found that my soul needed apocalypse. It needed apocalyptic language because the apocalypse was the only genre that gave language to my growing understanding of a Lord and Savior who transcended my personal beliefs or agenda and was doing something much greater in the world than just saving my soul, that he was doing something much, much more the opening, opening lines of John's apocalyptic letter to the seven churches here, these opening lines were, uh, to this letter were written to a, a, a group of churches under heavy Roman persecution. And these opening lines call us upward. They call us, as all apocalyptic language does, they call us to wander again To think about, to stand in awe of the nature of Christ's lordship and saving power. These opening words call us to look up, or better yet, to come up and to look down. To see more than what is just in front of us and around us. I mean, Revelation itself is John being caught up to heaven to get a new perspective. To see things differently from the perspective of heaven. Jane Fahey refers to this salutation, these opening lines, as a subversive declaration. Saying that with the Lord God, there is always more. More transformation to come than the earth has yet seen. More power and authority than that claimed by earthly rulers. And more dignity for God's people than earthly rulers recognize. By calling us upward, John is giving the church a glimpse of how things look from heaven. On earth, for instance, their robes, the the, the robes of the saints, are drenched with the blood of violence. But in heaven, their robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb, which was spilled as human violence was poured out on him. Notice too how John begins by how John begins identifying God for us in these opening lines. He says, "God is the one who is and who was and who is to come." Rather than beginning literally and saying the one who was and is and is to come, John begins by emphasizing that the, that God is the one who is, instead of speaking literally. John calls our attention immediately to the God who reigns right now, the one who is. Despite what the world's circumstances may say, despite what the persecuted church saw on their right and their left, John was calling them upward to consider that despite their circumstances, God still is. Now this language is actually calling back all the way from the Exodus. This I am language. Even later on when he says I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is that language that, 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 that the Jews understood from the Exodus. And also in their apocalyptic tradition. That he is the God who is. Eternally existing. Always present. Always powerful. God who is. And who was. And who is to come. And it isn't just apocalyptic language that is employed in this letter. But the language of liturgy is used throughout Revelation. Liturgy, worship, what we do in church. The language of liturgy is used throughout Revelation. We find it right here in our passage today, in our reading. In our reading today, verse 7 is actually a doxology. In in the Greek, it has form and rhythm and rhyme. We don't really see it in our translation. But we find a doxology, most likely something poured. From a worship book in the, in the late first century church. Look, he is coming in the clouds, they would have sang. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all of the tribes of the earth will well. So be it. Amen. The worship of the church is, is pulled together with this apocalyptic language in the letter to the seven churches. The worship of the church was central and should still be central to the life of the church. In the early church, worship was how they kept the stories alive. Before there was a printing press or before there were good translations or or study Bibles or commentaries or 2,000 years worth of preaching to draw from, the early church used worship as a way of passing down these stories, of telling these stories in a way that could be remembered in a way that would capture the imagination. The worship of the church was central. It was the life of the church. It was what they did. One of the best definitions I ever heard from worship actually came from one of my professors at Gardner-Webb, a Baptist scholar, uh, Steve Harmon. But I want to give you that definition now, and we're going to use it throughout the sermon as a workable definition for what worship even is. But Harmon proposes that worship Is the participatory retelling, in other words, we participate in it, the participatory retelling of the biblical story of the triune God. In other words, every time we worship, our bodies are physically participating in retelling the story of God. It's not just words we say because the leader up here asks us to say them, it's not just prayers we pray because it's time to pray. It's not just time to shake hands and greet one another, which is actually a a part of worship and how we pass blessings to one another and how we fellowship with one another. Uh, These are all components of what we do, but we don't just do them for for the sake of doing them. We're doing them because by doing them, we participate in retelling the story of God, the biblical story of the triune God through our bodies, through our words, And our prayers and our laments and our sermons and our voices and our touch and our receiving of the body and the blood of Christ. We are putting our full bodies into the story of God and retelling it over and over and over and over again. Every Sunday or in any setting when the church gathers to worship, that's what we're doing. We are participating in retelling the story of God. And this is a very subversive thing when you begin to think about it, because not only are we putting our bodies into the participation or into the retelling of, the, of this story, but we are doing it over and against the dominant story of the world. And we're even doing it over and against the dominant story of our lives. You know, worship tells us, for instance, that, that, that God's story over and over, that God reigns, that God is king. However... The world says that other things are in control. The first century church, Caesar is king. The ones in political power are the ones that have control. Yet the church continues to sing, despite what the world narrative says, All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice with us and sing hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thou burning sun with golden beam. Thy silver moon with softer gleam. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah! 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 Even in the midst of our suffering at times, we come to church and sing songs that are in direct contradiction to what we're experiencing. There are times when we gather together and we sing about God as healer, even when we're still sick. God as provider, even when we don't know how our needs are going to be met. God as sustainer, even when we feel so, so weak and we don't know how we're going to go forward. It's a way in which we subvert the narrative we've been handed. Worship is a way in which we subvert it with our whole bodies participating in the moment. Now this merger in Revelation of apocalyptic message and worship medium is is, is no mistake. John has an agenda here in doing this. It is in this intersection between the message of the apocalypse and the medium of worship that the church can find ways to embody their confessions of faith. Because true worship, listen to this, true worship functions as a subversive ritual retelling God's story of salvation to the world and to ourselves. Worship calls us, Despite our circumstance, to look up and to see more than meets the eye, to hear from heaven and to tell a story where God has the final say in the matter, to subvert what we think is the final say, to to, to help us imagine something greater and more transcendent than ourselves and than our circumstances. But John doesn't just call us to look upward. John calls us in this reading to look forward to Christ's return. And to a full consummation of the kingdom here. A day, John says, when all eyes will see him. A day when all of God's revelation is full. And all of our hearts have a sudden aha moment a time in which all eyes will see him and cry out it says now it may seem in this text that this apocalyptic imagining of the lordship and saviorship of christ is short-sighted i mean are we saying that heaven and earth are forever on parallel tracks i mean is there any comfort in knowing that when all hell is breaking loose on earth at least things are good in heaven if they're always on parallel tracks that never touch and never intersect? What comfort is there in knowing that while our world falls apart, at least things are good in heaven? Which is largely what that theology based on the sole question of, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that's the narrative it operates off of. God doesn't care too much about what happens here as long as you're ready to get to where everything's good. But the apocalypse is calling us to see that at times it may feel as if these tracks are running parallel, but that there are also times in which they intersect. John and the apocalyptic writers of Scripture are saying that even when we don't see it, heaven is running alongside of us, and that if we'll be patient and faithful, eventually the tracks of heaven and earth will intersect that heaven's victory will be earth's victory. Now, Renovatus, our manifesto, we say it this way. We are people from the future. We act in fearless conviction that the rules have changed and that we are partnering with God to make that change visible. We will not be reactionary to anything or anyone. Because the apocalyptic event of resurrection has already transformed the world. And this is one reason why I wanted to include the first part of of Revelation rather than just the lectionary reading. is because in verse 3, we are told, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it for the time is near. In many ways, what John is doing here throughout the letter, and in this particular passage, is that he's calling the church to be obedient so so that the church may make visible God's future. That through our obedience, through our giving of our bodies and ourselves to the story that God is writing, through our participation in telling the world and ourselves who God is and who God was and what God is wanting to do in the future, We are offering to the world a testimony, a visible testimony of what heaven holds for us and what God desires for our future. What we are claiming, renovatus, in this manifesto, is that Christ is the firstborn of the dead. As John says here, the apocalyptic event of resurrection has taken place. And if we believe that, as we confess in our creed each Sunday, If we believe that, if we believe that Christ is the firstborn and that he is resurrected and that that event was apocalyptic, then that means that God's kingdom has already come, that it is here. And yet, God still has a future that we anticipate. That we live in the already but the not yet tension. I know we've talked about that a lot. and You've probably heard that in church before. We already live in that tension to, that Christ is already the firstborn of the dead. The resurrection has already taken place. In many ways, the apocalypse has already taken place because the worst thing that could ever happen has already happened when humans crucified the Son of God and God answered with resurrection. That that has changed everything. And even though we anticipate more as John is calling us to imagine the moreness of God and the moreness of God's plan. I know it's not a word, but it's going to work for us here. That Put a dash in it and it's a word. Do it. Spell check will let you pass. You can dash anything and spell check. It's a word. The moreness of God that when we begin to imagine that and we begin to see that, we understand this place that we live in. So how does the church then live and function in this already but not yet space which is what advent is all about by the way the coming of christ the birth of christ i mean even when we start looking at the story of mary we see a story of someone who lives in that tension knowing what she is carrying is god's plan and god's son and god's desire for the earth, and wrestling with that, and all the things that transpire, but not yet knowing how all that's going to unfold, not yet knowing how all that's going to look like, and even struggling with what that looks like. In our manifesto, we say this, we claim this as a church. What are we saying? We're saying that in this tension between the already and the not yet, that the church lives and exists as a testimony to God's future. You are people from God's future because you testify of the future that we believe God is bringing to bear on the cosmos, on all of creation. Our worship, our liturgy, the things we do, our our ministry, the way in which we serve, the way in which we seek justice, the way in which we love our neighbor, the way in which we take care of those who who are without, the way in which we watch after one another, these are all ways that we're testifying of the peaceful future of God in the midst of a world that is filled with chaos and and, 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 and seems like at times the divisiveness is ripping us apart at the seams, we are committed to being a living testimony of the future peace and reign of Christ. We live now as if that future has been fully realized. We pray and then we live as though we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We feed the hungry as a testimony to a day coming when there will be no more hungry. We visit the lonely and imprisoned as a testimony for a day coming when no one will feel alone and there will be no more prisons. We clothe the naked as a testimony for a day when there will be no more who are cold and naked. We comfort the morning as a testimony to the day when he will wipe every tear from our eye. We take care of the poor and we defend them and watch after them as a testimony for the day coming when there will be no more poor. We defend the weak as a testimony to the day coming when the weak will be made strong. And we worship every Sunday, every time we gather. Again and again and again, telling God's story. Not just telling it, but putting our bodies into it. And now the time has come for us to worship at the table. By taking the blood and the body of Christ. Now we participate not only in the retelling of Christ's death on the cross, which is what we often think of as the dominant narrative of the table, but we also this morning participate in telling the story of the hope of his return. First Corinthians 11, verse 26, Paul reminds us: as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim or testify to the Lord's of the Lord's death until he comes. Will you stand with me? We could have some musicians and our servers can come on. Jesus tells his disciples at that first last supper that he would again drink with them from the fruit of the vine when his kingdom had fully come. We believe that Christ is present with us this morning as we receive the bread and the cup. For us as a church, we believe that we are participating not only symbolically, But that as we come to the table of the Lord, open to all, that the Lord is present with us in the doing of that. And even though we know that there's still so many ways that we want to see God's kingdom break into this world, for a brief moment this morning, we get to participate in God's future, where we will share the cup in His presence with Him in perfect peace the one who is the one who was and the one who will be let's read the invitation together this is the table not of the church but of the Lord it is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more so come you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often, and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow, and you who have failed, come, because it's the Lord who invites you, and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here.
0: Thank you again for joining us we invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website renovatuschurch.com as we close every service at renovatus would you join me in praying the lord's prayer our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us